Greetings, listeners and listener land. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. We originate from and connect the gateway city to our country's current cultural fabric and live. Want to give you some important things that you need to remember if you're going to be celebrating Juneteenth. One of the big things going on will be June 20th at 5 o'clock p.m., and that will take place in downtown St. Louis on the east side of the Civic Courts building. And it is the unveiling of a memorial. It's the Freedom Suits Memorial, and on the line we have the Honorable Judge David C. Mason, who is the 22nd Judicial Circuit Division 17 Judge. Judge Mason, welcome to St. Louis in Tune. Hey, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm glad that we were able to connect and talk about this because it's something that's been a long time coming, and my first question to you is how long has it been that you've been working on this particular project? Actually, I started working on the issue in 2008. It took a while to educate enough people to gain momentum and then bring in some top legals in the bar who could pick up the ball and start to fundraise because I'm not allowed to go out and try to raise money. So we needed people to get the fever, if you will, and go out and raise money. And we, we found that in Paul Baker, uh, Lynn Ann Vogelin, former Mayor Francis Lynn. And many people know about Dred and Harriet Scott. They're very familiar with that historic Supreme Court case and the statue that's on the eastern edge of the old courthouse downtown. But they're like freedom suits. What's a freedom suit? Many people may not be aware of that. Can you explain that to them? I most surely can. The Dred and Harriet Scott case was a freedom suit. What had been going on for about a little more than 50 years here in St. Louis is that slaves who felt that the law gave them a civil right to their freedom would go into court and sue for their freedom. And these were called freedom suits. And essentially, if there was some legal basis for it, it, it could be that they felt they had some papers that weren't being honored, that payments had been made that weren't being respected, that they had to go to court. But one of the most common, and this is Dred and Harry Scott, but the most common, had to do with a unique aspect of Missouri law. You read about the Missouri Compromise, had a law that essentially says, if you are a slave and you are taken into a free state, and you are held in that free state, at the very least, for as long as the it takes to establish residency in that free state, you then become free. And on the Missouri law, once you become free, you're always free. It would simply put once free, always free was the maximum in Missouri law. So what would happen is the place would be bought back by the person holding themselves out, holding himself out as now a slave owner. And then the slave would make contact often through some of the free slaves in the community to reach one of the lawyers who would get involved in filing these lawsuits. And the lawyer would file the suit. In very many cases, the judge would have to issue orders protecting the slave while the suit was pending. And then the lawyer would go about the process of 
gathering witnesses or affidavits. And I say affidavits because black people weren't allowed to testify in court, slaves. And then they would present the information, and it was jury trial, jury of 12 citizens, 12 white male property owner citizens, which made me wonder what kind of brilliant arguments were being made to win these cases because over 130 times these cases were won. And the tribute goes to not only the, the courageous slaves, and I want to say courageous, and we can't, we can't understate that word. The horrors that they were facing if they lost would prevent the great majority of people from taking the chance in the courtroom. They took a chance anyway, and some had to face the punishment sold down the river to the plantation of Mississippi and Louisiana. If you want to know where that phrase being sold down the river comes from, that's actually where it comes from. And uh, that courageousness needed to be honored. But the next thing that needed to be honored that was unique here is the fact that our courts respected the civil rights of slaves to sue, because you've got to remember, this is a world where the American slave, the then-called Negro, was on the lowest rung of society anywhere in the United States. In fact, lower rungs, if you will, anywhere in the United States, even the Native Americans. For example, in many states, a white man could marry a Native American, no problem. White man marries a Negro, it violates the law. And in fact, I have an ancestor who did 14 days in jail because he married a Negro woman. Uh, and that's how things work. So superimpose that cultural standard over what was going on in St. Louis, where slaves were going court suing their white slave owners, and in many cases winning, that was unique. It, that's that was very unique, unique especially... Yeah, especially, uh, Judge Mason, because the attorneys at the time many times would argue for the plaintiff, the slave, or would argue for the defendant, who would be the slave owner. And many times they shifted back and forth. But there were several attorneys who were very, I don't want to say abolitionist, they were anti-slavery, and they did not like slavery, and they defended slaves and got people to put money up for the defense of them. And I admire their tenacity in continuing forward with that. The You, you, you mentioned something— Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you mentioned about courageous slaves. I, I agree with you that they had everything to lose by engaging in this proposition of attempting to get their freedom and had to put up money. And then wasn't it that they had to stay with the sheriff at the time and then the sheriff could lease them out or rent them out so that they wouldn't be taken down the river or so that they were going to be productive? I'm a little confused on some of the details on that. Well, what was going on there, there were a number of plaintiffs that the only way to protect them was to bring them under the protection of government. And at that time, the only place government had to house them was the jail. Now, obviously, there's a cost attached to that. So the judges would allow the sheriffs to rent them out, if you will, so that money could come in to pay for their care during the pendency of their suit, because sometimes fees took a while. And uh, you said you weren't sure if those lawyers were abolitionists. Actually, they were, but they found the way to use their skills to take away at slavery, case by case, bit by bit, 
which is what a lot of lawyers today in fighting civil rights cases. That's what they do. And there were lawyers who developed this, I guess, if you will, as some sort of a specialty. Uh, judges took a little bit more risk because they had to deal with elections. I don't know how many may have lost an election over it, but there was some risk for them as well. Now, one of the things I have always, I shouldn't say have always, but in in reading about this, because I I did quite a bit of reading, there's a a lot of great books on this. Anthony Sestrick wrote a book about a 57 years history of freedom suits in the Missouri courts. There's a lot of great things that the Missouri History Museum has. But the tide that changed from all of this time where we have all these freedom suits going through the court and then all of a sudden Dredd and Harriet Scott gets there. It was a change in philosophy of the courts, the judges at the time, because of they couldn't continue being judges because of they could only be a judge so long. Was that the main thing? That I know when the Scott's case, it initially was declined and then it was accepted and then the, the defendant appealed was it just a change of judges at the time that really steered the Scott's case? Well, the major change occurred at both the Missouri Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court. See, as those years were going on, the pro-slavery, well, you can imagine here in the state of Missouri, the pro-slavery movement, they obviously was taking issue with these lawsuits. And Missouri law, was clear what only way you can knock up those lawsuits is to change Missouri law. That that was clear to them. As time went on, they were able to build a pro slavery majority in the Missouri Supreme Court. And as Dred and Harris Scott just happened to come along. And they did their case and they litigated at trial and they won their trial, but then they're taken up and lo and behold the Missouri Supreme Court chooses to change fifty years of Missouri law and basically bring the freedom suits to an end, the lawyers representing Dredd and Harry Scott then chose to try to take it into the federal system. And essentially the same result, except at the U.S. Supreme Court, I would use the word devious. The pro-slavery judges had a more devious approach. See, it's something you should know that's very important. An appellate court is not supposed to develop their own facts. They're only supposed to review a case based on the facts that have been developed in the trial court below. That did not occur in the Dred Scott case. Mm. What happened was that the Justice Taney, seizing upon what he believed to be a moment where the Supreme Court could end the slavery debate. See, you, you think the nation is divided on something. Now, let me tell you. This nation is nowhere near divided to the degree it was leading up to the Civil War. That was some serious division, and slavery was the issue. And the Supreme Court, under Tatum's leadership, decided that they could end it. So instead of simply dealing with the narrow issues before them, in fact, they didn't really have to take the case, given what the Court of Appeals rules. They instead took the case as an opportunity to be far more expansive. If you read the Dred Scott, Scott decision from the first word to the last, it is a manifesto of racism. Mm. Every racist ought, belief, 
cultural moray. It's written into Supreme Court edict. No facts to back this up. Almost as if he was saying, we heard black people can't do this, so we're not saying that's a fact. That when you read the opinion, you realize there's no factual basis for any of it. It's just general beliefs that were held by people who were trying to justify slavery, who would say anything to do. So he spends all of this time writing all of these things to try to justify a decision that scholars at the time, and Abraham Lincoln included, saw as constitutionalizing the right to own slaves. In fact, Abraham Lincoln said in the newspaper, and at the time he wasn't president, he says he went to bed with Illinois being a free state and woke up with it being a slave state because of the Dred Scott decision. Hmm. Because the Dred Scott decision was moving the nation. In fact, some argue had moved the nation to the point that owning a slave became a constitutional right on the same level that owning a gun is a constitutional right. Obviously, the only way that could be turned back would be by way of a constitutional amendment. But everyone knew there was no way an amendment like that was going to pass given the configuration of the states at the time. Right. And that's when people began to see, hey, there's going to be either a breakup of the nation or we're going to have to fight. And when the Confederate states decided that there should be a breakup of the nation, the United States decided we've got to fight. And the rest of history. So you've got years and years of freedom suits that are brought before the courts, and many won. Some didn't win, but many won. And then you get all the way up to what you were just talking about, the Dred Scott decision, which went to the Supreme Court. And those files, all those files of those freedom suits were really uncovered early in the 21st century here. They were just discovered, in my understanding. And then it just exploded. Can you shed any light on the discovery of those particular freedom suits and the documents and then the investigation of all of that information? Yes. After the Civil War, the files were just simply stored the way files are stored by courts, generally speaking. And more files come in and more files come in and the years go by. And then we move all of our old files to the old Gold Democrat building. Years go by and more files come in. And under then Clerk Mariano Favazza, there was a, a decision to, to clean up these files, perhaps digitize some of them. So all the files, people just looking through them and staff discovered these files, literally preserved in boxes, in it with a ton of other files. And uh, that's when their significance began to, came to the attention of the court. And uh, consequently, as you know, the historical society, the universities, and so on, because it told a story that was left out. The Dredd and Harris Scott case wasn't some unique where some lawyers said, oh, why don't we give this a try? Actually, it had been the case that was part of a long series of a unique thing that was going on here in St. Louis. And I'd say it had remained buried. Perhaps for a while it had been potentially buried. But once it was discovered, historians realized there's another piece of the puzzle, another thing that sort of explains why this nation was moved to such a brutal battle. And I think that's why a lot of historians have written books on just these suits, because 
turns out now, it really explains why Justice Taney went so far to try to undermine suits like this using the language that he did, because there was a lot more going on than initially with Mickey Ock. There was a need to stop any and all possible discussion of black people suing white people. It's the phrase in the Dred Scott decision, the Negro has no right that the white man is bound to respect. It is like turning a light bulb on in a dark room where we reveal history that we didn't know. And it, I, whenever we talk about history on this show, it's always important to understand the context in which it happened and what was going on culturally at the time, what people were thinking, what was written about it. And many times I know individuals try to impose current thought on what happened back then. And the revealing of that makes the whole Supreme Court case, just as you said, and the decision, it, it enlightens why it was the way it was. Because you just learn about, in school, you just learn about, oh, Dred and Harriet Scott and what happened to them. But everything that happened up to that point, and that was a really turning point and a tipping point for the country. It really just set things off after that. You're absolutely correct. And let me point out, the only reason we call it the Dred Scott case is because of the attitude at that time of women being at the forefront of anything. But the those lawsuits were primarily raised by women because if they won, their children were also free. Exactly. Truthfully, it should be called the Harry Scott case, to be honest with you. And Lynn Jackson would, would agree with you. We've talked to Lynn previously about her ancestors and how she has she's carrying the torch to keep the information accurate and alive. You know, each time that we plan a show for St. Louis In Tune, we strive to bring you informative, useful, and reflective stories, as well as interviews about current and historic issues and events that involve people, places, and things. And while St. Louis In Tune originates from the Gateway City and covers local topics, we also connect what's going on nationally as well. Our topics cover a wide range of arts, crime, education, employment, Faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, sports, and that's just to name a few. We know there's many radio stations, programs, even podcasts that you could be listening to, and we're glad that you've chosen to listen to St. Louis In Tune. If you've missed any of our previously aired programs of St. Louis In Tune, simply visit stlintune.com. That's stlintune.com intune.com there you'll find every show from our first to our most current use the search engine to look for a show that might interest you from one of the many topics that we've covered and drop us a line and tell us how we're doing you can do that at stlintune at gmail.com that's stlintune at gmail.com st louis in tune heard monday through friday on the usradionetwork.com and many great radio stations around the U.S. and, of course, right here in St. Louis. And don't forget, check out our website, stlintune.com. That's stlintune.com. We are talking with the Honorable Judge David C. Mason, 22nd Judicial Circuit judge in Division 17. 
We're talking about freedom suits, and suing for freedom back prior to the Civil War was not easy. And just as a recap, there was an 1807 statute that had many requirements that outlined steps how slaves could take to win their freedom. They had to prove that they were free black persons. They also had to prove that they had been physically abused while being held. And these suits followed a pattern. The same wording was used. The statute from 1807 was made part of Missouri law in 1824 and remained in effect until after the Civil War. And many slaves sued for their freedom in St. Louis based on the fact that they lived for a time in Illinois when their owner took them there and where slavery was prohibited. And over 300 slaves in St. Louis used this law to sue for their freedom between 1812 and 1865, less than half won their cases. And one of the things we're talking with Judge Mason about is the unveiling of the Freedom Suits Memorial, which is actually a sculpture done by Preston Jackson. And my question about choosing Preston Jackson, Preston's been on the show a couple times. He did the sculpture here in North Webster, where the station is located, Judge Mason. And the process that led up to, in the committee that you're on, of how you're going to memorialize these freedom suits, because the importance of it is getting the information out that the Dredd and Harriet Scott decision was just not something, like you said, and I like the way you said that, all of a sudden, boom, we're going to try to change things. But it was a continuance of something that had been going on. Discuss a little bit about the conversations about what you all were looking for on the committee from a memorial sculpture. We put it out, naturally, and we got a variety of artists who interested, particularly artists within a few hundred miles of St. Louis. And some of the, the concepts ran from interesting abstract to completely realistic to this sort of storytelling, which was Preston Jackson's relatively unique approach. He came in and had done a lot of research on it himself. I think I was impressed with the degree to which he armed himself with knowledge. And he talked about what the history meant to him as a black man, what it meant to him, and how it energized his desire to tell that story through his art. He showed us his design work, and it was exactly what we wanted, artwork that told the story. It's amazing at how it does that way. If you just walk around it, I've seen people who got it. We have it in, and I've seen people walking to it, and they just automatically start walking around it and essentially reading the story. Preston named his art as well from the theory that We've always gone into courts to fight for our civil rights. Even when the laws were passed in the 60s, you had to go to court to protect the freedoms given by those laws and sometimes win those freedoms. And as we know, criminal law is all about either fighting for your freedom or trying to win your freedom. So Preston titles his artwork, Freedom's Home. The courthouse is the home where freedom is. That's where you go to really get it, to protect it, to get it back. And his whole concept of what it meant to have in that period of time our courthouse to be a place, even though it's in that limited circumstance, where slaves could go to find freedom. That's why you want to call it Freedom's Home. And that's what's so unique and so important. And that's why it's really a part of a celebration. See, we're celebrating what we did here in St. Louis. 
This is a monument to the right side of history, to the things that we were doing right, the judges were doing right. You know, nothing was perfect. This is nation is always moving towards a more perfect union. But it sets an example for us, as people walk by it, of what we can be. We've been it, we can be it. You want to talk about making America great again, let's make America as great as those freedom suits were, where people could go into court no matter what their station in life and litigate openly for their freedom. And if they have the evidence that says they're entitled to it, get the verdict that they ought to have. That's greatness. You almost answered my question, or you really answered my next question, which was, what do you want people who see the memorial, who see Freedom's Home, to glean from viewing it? And you pretty that much answered we it. have a system that is a great one. We have individuals who carry into that system the infection of racism that came from the Supreme Court writing those words, which stand today as a Supreme Court case, because all the Constitutional Amendment did was change the holding. So the findings of the court are in the record books today. Infected the nation with black codes, with Jim Crow, with segregation laws, with voter restrictions, all the language that justified all of that. You can see it coming right out of the Dred Scott decision. And our system is still infected with that virus that hit the justice system when the Supreme Court said all of those things and gave power to all of that horrible racist thinking. So true enough, there are problems within the system that are there now and will pop up on us. In many cases, it's there. The beauty of the system is that it sets a process for fighting. Due process is there. And and that monument says, if we protect due process for all, we'll get the highest modicum of justice that we as humans can squeeze out of our system. Are you still accepting donations for the sculpture and the memorial? Yes, because we are going to move forward with a virtual learning center that will be under the newly formed of Freedom Suits Memorial Foundation. Now, what is this virtual learning system going to do? This virtual learning site is going to be a site where historians, for example, Ann Twitty, can put in information that they want to put in as well as pull out information to help bring to America some of the undiscovered stories of our nation's racial conflicts and probably won't limit it to just simply black-white conflicts, although the story of slavery in America is not fully told. And the point will be that by revealing some of this history, people will come to understand that this nation's greatness was built a significant part on the backs of the American slaves. The reason that the Civil War occurred is that people who were making tons of money off the sugar industry, the tobacco industry, the cotton industry, and the subsequent textiles industry that flowed from that, 
and any number of industries that relied on massive amounts of hard labor. There were millions, four, somebody, four or five million slaves throughout the South during this period. That those businesses had to have slavery. The economy of the entire South was being built on it. So when that economy became threatened by the abolitionist movement coming from the North, there was a need to, some thought, break off from the nation, from the United States, in order to protect all of this economic power. So what did they do? Well, you got to remember, that was a world where education, everybody was poorly educated for the most part. Illiteracy was not even at anywhere near the halt, the all-time high that the issue in the United States. But most people were, they learned things from the pulpit. They learned things from their local newspaper, the politicians, people doing stump speeches, so on. And what went on was a propaganda campaign to tell white people throughout the South that, look, if these Northerners have their way, black people will get in and they'll vote you all out, they'll take over government, and they're going to retaliate against you for all those hundreds of years of slavery. And that retaliation is going to be brutal. They'll take whatever little property you have. And, of course, your daughters and wives will be at risk. Now, hearing that, who wouldn't want to pick up a gun, right? That's how they motivated all those families to send their young kids, young men, young boys, to go face the cannons of the North, to lose their lives often in horrible fashion, loose limbs, eyes, you name it. That's what made them go at it like that for so long and suffer so much. One of the main things that have been happening throughout the South over the years is the realization that the so-called rebel soldier was used, just plain old used in one of the most horrible ways that people can be used. That story that it's going to be told more and more. And part of the virtual learning center is going to be to bring this out so people can see what was really going on in this country to cause such war to be waged. Which brings about what kind of propaganda, I'll use that word, and I use it in the terms where you are, or I should say brainwashing, forcing people under their own volition, though, to accept something and do something for what they think is a greater cause, but is actually for a pocketbook and survival of others. Exactly. That was a very interesting uh, enlightenment. I was not aware. I think that's a good way to put that about how the rebel soldiers have been used. I hadn't really thought about it that way. You are going to... Go ahead. It's something we'll be discussing more. I'll tell you about a little event. I don't want to call too many people out here, but I was speaking to the Civil War Society in a meeting at Jefferson Barrack. They have a little meeting center there. And I just already got gotten out and why I was there, what I I was speaking on, because when I arrived, along the back of the room were a number of Confederate flags. And I was told that the table back there was a setup by the sons of the Confederacy. Um, and I saw the flags and I was thinking to myself, if they think that's going to intimidate me, they really don't know me. I grew up in the South. 
I went to school at Austin Peay State University, which was 85% rural white. I made a lot of friends whose family history goes right back into fighting for the Confederacy. I've learned a lot of discussions and I've gotten a sense of how people felt. And when I got through speaking, I opened it up to questions and I picked the hand being raised by one of the sons of the Confederacy. Because I knew it was going to be a confrontational question. And he basically took the position that many organizations like that do, that blacks had slaves too. Can we bring out that fact? And I'm assuming he thought I was going to deny it or get angry with him for raising it. I don't know. But I responded, well, yes, that's true, because there were a lot of black people throughout the South and the North that used their freedom to try to raise money to buy relatives. So if you're going to ask me, can you find all kinds of documents of black people owning slaves? Of course you can. But you have to look at more of the deeper reason why. It was, again, part of the things going on in this country where there were these bit-by-bit attempts to go at slavery and undermine it any way possible. And that's something you have to really pay attention to. And after I explained that to him, I, they did, I didn't get another question, answered some other questions. And at the end of the meeting, I actually wanted to go talk to the sons of Confederacy. I left the podium and headed in their direction. The flats were gone. So I went out the door and there was a, an officer there, I think maybe had been stationed there to look out for me. I wasn't worried about anything. I asked, where did they go? Because I want to talk to some more and in fact, invite them back in for further discussion. And the officer told me they just came out, packed up their flags and left. Hmm. Now, that incident really is the kind of thing that shows what it can mean to put truth on the floor. Absolutely. Not anger, not fear of each other, not a desire to be controlled, but just put a little truth on the floor. And then let's work from there. Because the truth, the truth doesn't care about your race. They don't, the truth doesn't care about your politics. Truth doesn't care about your gender or anything else. It is what it is. Truth said, here I am, baby. Scientifically delivered. Deal with me. And that's one of the things that we really want to try to do with the Virtual Learning Center is simply put truth on the floor. And let's have the serious discussion about how this nation was built. Bottom line is, the goal is that if more people understand, more people who feel they have a racial animus understand that black people have been their partners all along, that we've been in this together for five hundred years. It becomes a little more difficult to have hatred in your heart to a people that have built the country you love and consider great. And that's why I'm such a strong believer in the speaking of truth, putting it on the floor and discussing it. I want to thank you for that. That's not only enlightening, it's satisfying and it's great to hear because truth doesn't know any color. It doesn't know gender. It doesn't know anything except it is what it is, like you said. And I appreciate those comments that you made because we need to hear more of that. We need to have those kinds of conversations without getting upset. And we need to know all of the story, not just part of the story that we've been told or that we want to believe. And I'd love to have you back when that virtual learning center starts to 
get kicked off, and we'd love to have more conversations about that with you. And folks, if you are free, June 20th, Monday at 5 o'clock, get down to the Civic Courts building in the city of St. Louis on the east side, the unveiling of the Freedom Suits Memorial to honor enslaved blacks who sued for their freedom before the Civil War. You can get some more information, stlcitycircuitcourt.com slash freedomsuits, and you can get some information. Judge Mason, we're grateful that you have given us your time to talk to us about this, and let's stay in touch so we can continue the conversation because it just helps people understand where we need to be. I will be very happy to thank you for bringing this information to your listeners. Thank you, Judge Mason. You have a great weekend. Look forward to seeing you on Monday. You bet, sir. I'll see you then. Thank you. Take care. Folks, what a great uh, information he provided for us. And I want to quickly segue to an interview that I had with Preston Jackson about the sculpture. And we're going to start that right now. Preston Jackson is our guest today. He has been the instructor of drawing and painting at several universities, a professor of art at Western University School of Art Institute of Chicago, where he was also professor of sculpture and head of the figurative arts department, chair of the sculpture department. He's the owner of the Raven Gallery, the home of the Contemporary Art Center in Peoria, Illinois. He specializes in bronze and steel sculpture and painting. He's best known for his work with bronze castings. You can see his work displayed across the United States, and we're going to be talking with him about the Freedom Suit sculpture that's going to be installed in St. Louis, Missouri. Preston, welcome back to St. Louis in Tune. Oh, thank you very much. It's great to have you here and talk about that Freedom Suit sculpture that you're doing. How was the research formulated for you in the design of the sculpture? The research is something that evolved many years ago during high school, probably before high school. I was just interested in knowing a lot of things about myself, which involved knowing a lot of things about my people, my race, and everything. So one thing led to another, and and of course, I began to do some serious research on it, which interfered a lot with my schoolwork. And to say, but I suffered from that. And so I really got into it and began to paint a subject matter about race issues. And I began to sculpt. Of course, the same thing. There's no difference between the two. And upon graduation with my master's degree, I continued that kind of research thing. Found out a lot of interesting, not, oh, interesting things, not only here in America, but from around the world. What surprised you the most? Well, what surprised me the most was, it didn't surprise me. It really opened my eyes to the fact that evolution is real. It is so much a part of being human. And that skin color has nothing to do with being human. Judge Mason in St. Louis of the Judicial Court, Uh he was spearheading this particular project and the group of individuals that got together, they put forth a proposal for this particular sculpture that they wanted to have done. What was the most challenging aspect of the sculpture for you? Well, I think scale, I think that's very important. I didn't want them to be little small figures that I wanted something large, not just figurative. 
and one something that was combined with modernism, a fine art, and also something that depicts with accuracy what it was like. And that's why I included reliefs and things around St. Louis that were reminiscent of the old days when that was slavery existed. And I think you even included some aspects like the mounds from Mound City. Oh, yeah, definitely. The last section that was torn down. What an interesting and cruel way to lose, because it is losing, meaning that the next generation to the next, we don't know anything about Native Americans. But yet to hear people have photographed what went on and terrible. We lost a lot of the culture when we were knocking all those mounds down and weren't appreciating what was there before. Yes, uh-huh. and also the sending of the Native Americans to another part of the country. Now, describe that for listeners. How do you go through this process of an initial design to the finished project? Because I know you, you do some sketches and then you do some clay work. And talk a little bit about so people understand exactly what goes into the final project. Well, I have a miniature model of the piece, not so miniature, it's pretty good size, <laughs> uh, about um, three feet made of styrofoam and clay. And from there, I take measurements and uh, after, you know, with the use of drawing, many drawings. And so that things that you would think come naturally or out of a thought, but it's putting it together with your imagination as well as other pieces of information coming from art movements, architecture, African art, combining all this stuff together, and then a final product, which I began to build out of steel, steel and clay, an armature of steel and clay coating. And then I would take a mold, plaster mold from the entire thing, that's measuring about 14 feet. And from that, from those molds of 36 different pieces, I would pull waxes from it, okay? Then I would cast the waxes in bronze, take it to the foundry, true form foundry in Chicago, and we'd cast the parts in bronze, and then we'd big weld them back together. I saw some recent photographs that you were putting a, a steel underskirt on there. Oh, yeah, uh-huh. that's like a foot. Yeah, it's a base, and that's made of stainless steel. From start to finish, how long did that take you, from the initial drawings all the way to, obviously, June 20th of 2022, it will be installed? Yeah, yeah. And if you would combine all of the sessions and work and days and weeks, it's about two years, two and a half years. And that's not working on it straight, is it? No, I know. There's a lot of downtime. I'd say maybe, well, this is really compressing it, but six months of steady working on it. You could do that. Gotcha. Which we didn't because it's just so many other things and hiring people. But it's not. But it drew out for about seven or eight years from the very early starting on it. Seven or eight years to complete it. But that's working off and on, sometimes two or three years without doing anything. And you're also working on other projects at the time, too, aren't you? Right. I'm doing my own work and, and working on other projects that are, are quite large. 
Do you ever get a time in your creative process where you hit a blank wall or you have to stop on a project like maybe this one because of the enormity of it and you just have to get away from it for a little bit and then come back or yeah no that's no problem because i'm very accustomed to working that in almost a habitual sense but the um, difficult part is when i can't get materials mm. and when the prices change mm-hmm. in materials or lining up transportation to haul large pieces to various places, but materials and finding the right help for certain things. But I do have people in place that I've had for years and Marshall Swenson, he's one of them. He owns Truthform, Truthform Productions. That's a foundry. And I have used him for years. You know, he was a student of mine. Oh, wow. Yeah, he had taken foundry classes from me at the Art Institute. So how thick is that sculpture actually? Oh, it's about a quarter inch in many places. Okay, okay. But it it supported like an external or internal skeletal thing. It's like folding paper, building paper airplanes. That's where the strength comes from. There's an opening in it that takes a different perspective when you look at it from one direction and you're looking up through the sculpture. Right. Just discuss that a little bit. That was very intriguing. Well, one area resembles the port of in Africa, Ghana, where Africans were loaded up. And it was a very narrow area that they went through to get on the beach to be shipped into boats out to a larger ship. And that's one area. And then that's one reason that opening exists. And the second is that you look through it and you can see the courthouse, the old courthouse, and you can see the gateway arch. And you can see just by peering through this, no information about information appearing. Can't get around it. It's there, narrow, like a microscope or telescope. As people come and approach the sculpture after it's unveiled and they're looking at it and they're walking around it, what do you want? visitors to take away when they leave after looking at it? Mm -hmm. Well, it's very plain and visual information. If you weren't a person that uh, read words, you can definitely see what it's about. See, so I want it to be plain and meaning clear, clarity in the work. And I want people to go away with the idea that This was a terrible thing that happened. And from now on, we should work toward the future in healing these things, making sure it doesn't happen again. Absolutely. So, folks, if you are available Monday, June the 20th, 2022, at 5 p.m. on the east courtyard of the St. Louis Civic Courts building, you will see the unveiling of the sculpture that Preston Jackson did the Freedom's Suits Memorial, and you will get a firsthand glimpse. There will be several speakers there that day. The Honorable Judge David Mason, who we just talked with earlier in the program, will be there to speak, as well as some other dignitaries. Lynn Jackson, who's the great-great-granddaughter of Dred and Harriet Scott, will be there. And it's going to be a very great time. What a wonderful memorial And I want to thank Judge Mason for his time and Preston Jackson for his time. 
that they gave to have this particular show. We appreciate you listening to this episode of St. Louis in Tune. Take time to look at the show notes on the website for everything that was mentioned on this episode. St. Louis in Tune is produced in cooperation with KWRH 92.9 FM and Motif Media Group. For St. Louis in Tune, I'm Arnold Stricker.